All right. Yep, CEO of 25 years, an author, and you do true crime speak uh, speeches or speaking at events. And as I had mentioned previously, uh, you've turned a zoo profitable, which, like I said, that's the most intriguing one. And then you also busted lottery fraud. Um, fraud. Good on Johnny Carson. Those that are old enough think that's a big deal at age 29. I don't know if you remember Andrew Dice Clay. He always thought that was the coolest thing when I talked to him. I, I do know of Man, Andrew Dice God. Clay. Um, so, <laughs> go ahead. You ask, I'll answer. How about that? <laughs> Sounds good. So, I was looking through, um, I know you gave the, uh, I guess, I don't know if you call them interview notes that are posted on your website, but that there are very good questions within that PDF. Um, and I, I would preferably like to use those. Um, so one off the top of my head is what, how does a small business like prevent fraud, basically? Sure. So are we recording? You're ready to go or do you want to start? Oh, I'm ready to go. Okay. Let her rip. All right. Um, so how does a small organization prevent fraud? I think there are a lot of good examples of small organizations that have been taken advantage of. Probably uh, a church, uh, a local school district with just one business person. Classic examples. Up to the biggest companies. Basically what happens is there are three key things that happen during internal fraud. The first is financial need. Somebody steals because... Didn't so much. You and I both like to make more money, right? Yeah. But really, it's when uh, somebody has a gambling problem, a drinking problem, divorce, all of those things kind of tip the scale. But the second of the three things is opportunity. If you give someone all the keys to the kingdom, and that's why a small organization is often ripe for fraud, because one person writes the checks and writes the purchase order. So they have all the keys to the kingdom. And so... Having checks and balances, making sure you have at least two people approving things, writing checks, that sort of thing, will take away that second key element in in internal fraud, which is opportunity. The third one is the hardest one to manage if you're a CEO or a manager, and that is rationalization. At what point does an employee say, you know what? I don't make enough money here. They're working me too hard. I deserve more money. Joe over here is making more money than I am, and I need all of this. I rationalize it's important. And it goes back sometimes to that um, original concept of financial need. I need more money because my kids just spent all of my money or my spouse you know, withdrew so much on the credit cards. I got to find a way to get more money. And you find that rationalization. So it's a financial need. Opportunity and rationalization, those are the three key elements, according to the American Society of Fraud Examiners, that will cause internal fraud. All right. Uh, keeping up with the fraud. So you busted the largest uh, lottery fraud in United States history. Um, so, And one of the things that's mentioned is that hot dogs play a role into this. How do hot dogs possibly play a role in busting a lottery fraud? And Bigfoot was even involved. Well, the simple part of the story is there's a gentleman that walked in and bought a lottery ticket. And that gentleman uh, walked into the wrong uh, convenience store because in Iowa, you have to disclose if you buy a ticket and you are an employee or a vendor of the lottery. And this guy was a vendor. He was the one that wrote the code, wrote all the 
information down and, and compiled it. Remember, keys the kingdom. He wrote the code. He compiled the code. He maintained the machine that drew the lottery numbers for this particular game called Hot Lotto. When it's all said and done, he figured out a way to put a code in that computer and uh, create this lottery fraud. And it took almost eight years and probably 20, 25 different people. I was ahead of lottery, so we began the investigation. It just didn't feel right. We had an old lawyer call us and say, hey, I've got the ticket, and I just want to send it in. You send me back $16.5 million. What? That's kind of weird, huh? So we began the investigation with that. He created the fraud initially, and it went back to another lawyer in New York who then tried to claim it, and then we started pushing him. Who bought it? Who bought it? Who bought it? And he finally said, ah, I don't need the money. I'm giving it up. So he forfeited the money, so we got the money back. Yet it didn't feel right, so we got the Department of Criminal Investigation and Attorney General's Office of the state involved and did a, two or three more years of investigation. It went up to Canada, around New York, and ended up in Houston, Texas, wow. where this guy, uh, lawyer, another lawyer, and his client were the ones that we knew had the ticket. But ultimately, we released the video, and I don't know if you know this, but every time you walk into a convenience store, you're being taped. Besides that, in some stores, you also have audio tape, and it was the audio that gave him away. He was disguised when he went in and bought the ticket. But when we played the audio on TV and sent that out to TV stations, a lot of people said, well, wait a minute, that's Eddie Tipton. And Eddie Tipton was this employee we, uh, for a vendor that we discussed. And ultimately, we busted him, and he uh, and realized through social media, that's the other thing, if you're doing anything illegal, don't put anything on social media because – they're going to check your contacts. They're going to check your cell phone contacts and tie it all together. And we figured out that these two guys had worked together prior to Eddie working for this lottery vendor. And so when we ultimately busted it, we got both him and his buddy arrested. Well, during the trial, which came out uh, with circumstantial evidence, said, yeah, the guy's guilty. Jury was easy on that one. But they had his brother come up to confess and say, hey, uh, you know, just say good things about Eddie so we get a lesser sentence. And the first thing he said was, hey, I saw that video. That can't be Eddie because Eddie don't eat hot dogs. <laughs> well, in the video, you could tell that Eddie Tipton bought two hot dogs. If he hadn't bought the hot dog, he probably would have never cracked the case. But lo and behold, as soon as he said that, the Associated Press did a full article on him saying he don't eat hot dogs. And lo and behold, it ended up in his hometown where an FBI agent said, wait a minute. That brother who was testifying, we tried to bust for for um, uh, money laundering. And he said that he wanted a, an event or a ticket in Colorado. So this FBI agent, it happened 10 years before all of this was going on, called us and said, hey, you should check out his brother too. So what did they do? They got their cell phones and their so all the social media. We compared those to winners across the United States and immediately found five jackpots. So. That's how the hot dog came into being when this guy, his brother, came in to testify. Bigfoot came in because the brother was also a Bigfoot hunter. And he would get his friends who were Bigfoot hunters to go in and cash the tickets. And one of them came back with a whole bunch of cash. And he got scared because he, he got the cash in sequential order. And he tried to money launder some of it through a fireworks dealer. And the fireworks dealer contacted the FBI. So all of these things had to happen to bust this case. Took almost seven years. But ultimately, the CBS News said it was the largest lottery fraud in U.S. history, and it was quite the team that came together with a lot of different people that each had a piece of the action when we busted that fraud. Wow. So how long is Eddie in prison for? 
Um, the three people, the guy that gave Eddie up, his best friend, uh, got probation. His brother got 52 days as part of the deal, and Eddie got up to 25 years. He's been in five years behavior. That he's going to be paroled sometime soon. So it's uh, I wouldn't want to be in prison, especially in the midst of COVID at yeah. any time in life. Yeah. Um, so now do you play the lottery or no? Can I play the lottery? Now that I'm retired, I can play the lottery. And just let me tell you, uh, you know, the way that it's designed, you know, lotteries are run by states. Most of the tickets you play are just state lotteries. But this hot lotto game, Powerball, Mega Millions, are run nationally by all the states combined. And uh, even though I knew a lot of the, the action, there are so many variables that we put into these games. It's really tough. In fact, I think I've won maybe four, maybe six dollars since I've been out whenever I play Powerball or Mega Millions. I, I've lost a lot more than, a, than I won. But it's the, always the chance of, you know, what if? And that's what the lottery is all about. The lotto games are more for the big jackpots. You don't really win a lot of the little ones. And then the scratch tickets are more like a slot machine where you're pretty much guaranteed or, you know, you know that there are X amount of prizes out there. So you win a lot more smaller prizes. So those are some of the, some of the variables that people, white people play the lottery. Are uh, ball drawings uh, safer than computers? That's a really good question. When all this happened, everybody said, oh, can't have any more computers. Well, let me tell you, um, the, the uh, same number of people who draw their own numbers as let the computer draw, about 80% of the people use the computer when you buy a ticket to draw, about 80% of the people win on those drawings. So it doesn't make any difference of whether you use balls or, or uh, computers. And, and I also got to say that uh, the... People say, okay, we had the fraud with the computer. Why don't you go back to balls? Uh, there's been fraud with balls. In, in Pennsylvania, I think they made a movie, John Travolta, Lisa Kudrow did a show called Lucky Numbers. And where, what happened there was the local draw officer and the person who was the on-air talent, I believe, uh, they conspired and they put in ping pong balls, they put latex paint and shook it up so that you really couldn't tell it. But... They were heavier than others. So they bought all the numbers that didn't have latex paint in it, and of course they won. But in fact, the mafia, an organized crime up there, were also playing those numbers. They noticed it looked weird on TV, and they were immediately busted. In uh, another one overseas, in, I think it was Milan, they had their nephews and nieces drawing the numbers with balls. And what they did was uh, they blindfolded them. So, man, that sounds like it's perfect. It's not what's wrong. But they would either heat the balls or cool the balls way down or put something on them slick. So then they told the kids, when you reach in there, grab the hottest ball you can find. That's how they kind of tried to rig it. That's only happened to the billions and billions of drawings that happen in lotteries. I only know of four or five instances somebody's tried. When you're dealing with that much money in lotteries, somebody's going to try to pull one over. But... I really, I really like the way that lotteries are run in the United States because they're controlled by states. So you can call the lottery director in your state or the governor or your representative. Whereas if you're playing in Malta, playing poker overseas on the internet, you have no idea what the heck's going on. Yeah, ab control. absolutely. Um, moving on from fraud, the uh, the intriguing one is the uh, the zoo. How did you turn a zoo profitable? Like what what is the process? Um. I, I did a book called Dare to Dream, Dare to Act, and, and you get lucky sometimes. Sometimes uh, people say, you know, as, as lucky, you just you work hard. You always raise your hand whenever you can to say, I'll do that. Somebody, a boss asks you to do whatever, and you get noticed. 
Well, I got lucky. I was in cable television, and ultimately, by the time I was 40, I got everything that my dad always told me, you know, work for someone when you're 62, uh, you're going to be really happy because you're going to have your Social Security and you'll have a good life. And at 40, someone came in and they cashed out this cable company, and I had all the money I'd ever hoped for. I'd been traveling all over the United States, helped start the MTVs and the CNNs and all of that as a cable operator. And lo and behold, I realized happiness doesn't happen on the, uh, uh, you know, when you turn 62, happiness happens on the way to success. And so I, I started my own company at that point, companies. I had enough money and I realized I'm not just going to blow all my money. You know, I like the lottery, but blow, you just want to play with what you can lose. I took some money and put it in, started my own TV production company, started doing HBO free previews. And at age 50, again, I traveled the U.S. all over, made great money. I thought, you know, I want to be with my kids now. I want to get off the road. So I decided, what could I do to give back? I've made most of the goals I've had in life. And lo and behold, the governor, called, the next governor called and said, hey, they're going to close down the zoo. It's losing $600,000. Do you want to uh, help us out? We're going to take it over and do a nonprofit. Would you Would you help us out? I thought, well, rip on the farm. I don't know why I couldn't raise giraffes and tigers. So, okay. So we went out, and it, it really was a, a, a fun deal because you can imagine, run by the city, a union shop, uh, you know, you put in your eight hours, you go, although all of the employees really had their heart into the animals, but it never really made enough money. It was losing money and not enough people coming through the door. So we started saying, well, we got about every kid from two to 10 coming in here. So let's brainstorm and talk about what are some things we could do differently to get more people through the door. So we thought about, well, how about Michael's age? Well, how are we going to get the young adults in who, who haven't been to, you know, most people go when they're a kid. They go and they have kids and they go and they have their grandkids. But how can we get them back two or three times in a year? And what do people like Michael like? Booze, right? So we started Zoo Brew. The idea was very simple. They don't want to be around little kids. So we opened the zoo up one night a week and we started selling booze and we brought a band in, left the animals out. And it was a place to take your date completely different than a smoky bar or someplace different. Lo and behold, this last year, I think they sold over $250,000 just in, in booze. But we had all these people coming in. And we also had to find ways, so we cash flowed it right away. Also had to find different ways uh, to sell things that we already had because the zookeepers wanted new exhibits, new animals. Um, but a new tiger exhibit might be 2 to $5 million. Well, we didn't have it at that point. We had to make it first. So we started thinking, well, what do we have at the zoo that uh, that we could sell, that we could make some kind of exhibit that wouldn't cost us that much. Well, what do zoos have that are produced every day for free? Animal poop. So we started an exhibit and worked with a company to get an exhibit called Scoop on Poop, where kids could come in and look over what a tiger poop looks like versus an elephant poop versus giraffe poop versus all these different kinds of poop. And lo and behold, we started getting people coming in. I mean, it was an absolute, it didn't cost anything for marketing because every DJ was talking about it on air. And then we decided and figured out that in, here in this state, we have a lot of white-tailed deer. Now, white-tailed deer have never seen a tiger, but we realized that when you take tiger poop and put it near a deer, they go nuts because they think it's a, it's a predator. They're the prey and a predator. So we started boxing up tiger poop and gallon jugs to sell them for 20 bucks. We sold $20,000 that summer just in tiger poop. So those are some of the ideas to get us started. Then the other way to kind of get us feeling, feeling better and looking for ways, we went to different groups. We started with the LGBT, 
LGBTQ group, they were looking for a place to do a Halloween event. And lo and behold, uh, we had drag shows at night. No one probably on the board ever knew we were doing it, but man, did we have a crowd. And all of a sudden, we became kind of the hip place to be at a different time than just for kids and, you know, a whole different audience as we did, did that. The other the final thought I would have with the zoo, which I think probably really got a reputation going that most people don't hear about in our community, is that one of our, you know, you, you try to get the employee firing up and get our whole group of employees, let's give us new ideas. We, You have as good ideas as we do. You see the people, what do people like? They said, we'd like to do an event where uh, we bring in kids who won't be around a year from now that are terminally ill. And let's not bring their parents. We'll volunteer our, our time for free, the employee said. Let's give them all free food. Let's let's just have a private night where they can bring their family and friends. Uh, we called it Dream Night. And we got the local PBS station to bring all the costume characters. And oh my God, you had to seen the crowds. The first year was like 350 people. Now they have two nights at 3,500 people show up, but we never publicize it. It's the give back from the zoo out. And the goodwill that that created when it was all said and done was just phenomenal. So all of that excitement started up and excited the people who were donors, who then gave more money for more exhibits. And anytime you can get exhibits and new animals that are endangered who have babies, babies are the number one draw at zoos. It really became announced the number two cultural attraction in the whole state of Ohio behind the state there. Wow, that's a that's amazing, honestly. Um, so then so you, you, you obviously brainstormed all of this. Um, how did you become, does this play part in how you became the idea dude? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think part of the reason that I love doing ideas, I love going into new places and helping companies uh, talk about how do we break the mold? How do we look forward? How do we do change? And if you think about it, you know, how, how many people that ran a taxi in New York ever thought that Uber would be competition. They laughed yeah. when Uber came out or the post office and FedEx and UPS came out. Oh, that'll never work. They're charging 30 bucks overnight. Well, it did work. So I liked it when I, when I went out to San Francisco and went to wine country, I, I realized I didn't understand this initially, that the people who, who develop wines, they don't just use the wines on the vines behind the shop. They go throughout the valley and they get a little, this grape, that grape, all these grapes, they put them in the big bushel baskets. So they got hundreds of grapes. So they can go back and figure out which one is the best for this year's vintage to win that award-winning bottle of wine. And so I go into groups and tell them the same thing. When you do a brainstorming session, if everybody around the table, one, one you want to only have less than eight people, you only want to do it for 10 minutes, you don't want to spend an hour, you make no judgments, every idea is a good idea. You want every idea, and you want it as diverse as possible. Today's society, Diversity is so important if you want the big money, if you want the big audience. And so you get that bushel basket, and every grape's going to taste different, look different, all that, just like every person and every idea should look different. And you take all those ideas, you put them down on paper, and you put them aside for if it's an hour or it could be three days, and then you come back. At that point, you're doing judgment. You're saying yes to judgment. Then the lawyers can say, oh, we're going to get sued on that one, or the accountants say, we don't have the money to do that. But everybody together prioritizes, and you'll be amazed how it goes, that certain ideas float to the top, which means that everybody agreed on them, and now you've got buy-in from all of your employees. So getting all those ideas in the bushel basket is so important. That's, that's group brainstorming. We all try to do that. The other thing that we came up with when I went to work for the state, um, 
was I, I walked in and, and say the idea, dude, when I walk in, somebody says, hey, give me an idea. I'll look up and say, hey, should we paint the wall purple? How about a yellow polka dot in the middle? How about this? How about that? Well, I did that by walking into the senior staff of the lottery and said, hey, why don't we uh, put animals on there? We thought about this. Can we make them smell? Well, what can we do? You know, and uh, about two weeks later, they came in. Everybody just looked beat up. I said, what's the matter? And one person raised their hand and said, we just can't do all this. I thought, yeah, state employees. What do you mean you can't do all this? They said, well, no, all these ideas, we can't, we can't do everything. It's too much. I said, I didn't ask you to do everything. I'm just trying to give you the bushel basket, lots of ideas, so you can evaluate. I don't want you to judge. This is the, the daring to dream piece, daring to dream, daring to act, which was the name of the book ultimately did. So we concluded that what we should do so that they understand when I say something is in the email under the subject line to start with either action required. You better do it. That's job changing. FYI, for your information, you know, study it when you can, but uh, you know, it's not an emergency and caught COT, which means consider or throw away. Now there are rules when you put consider or throw away in there. Number one is if you're busy, just delete it, throw it away. I, I just need to get it off my chest. Uh, if, and don't respond, don't say, oh, good idea or bad idea. I just wanted to have you give an idea to consider at some point. And in that, all of a sudden, they were doing the same thing. So they understood immediately whether it was that I was the boss saying you got to do it or not. Uh, but two, they passed it on to their employees. And all of a sudden, we found like the receptionist uh, who maybe once in a while had a great idea because they saw every new person coming through the door and would get an idea, but they'd be afraid to tell the boss, hey, I think we should do this. So what would they do? They'd go down and try to write something on the idea thing and put it in the suggestion box. Well, that sat around for a week until somebody opened it, and then they'd pass it around, and somebody'd say, I don't know whether we can afford whatever. Might be three or four weeks before you got back to that receptionist. Yet at that point, she or he's probably in the down at the break room saying, you know, I gave an idea to management, and they never listened. Well, now they could give the idea knowing we, we weren't going to respond. And they didn't feel like they could be fired for giving a dumb idea. Every idea was a good idea. And all of a sudden, we had this free exchange of ideas. And we kept writing them down and kept them in a file so we could review once a year and prioritize. Because an idea today may be something to add on to an idea tomorrow when your environment changes within the business world. And that's kind of how the idea came about of, you know, we have it now. I also talk about failure as I do that. I usually do. I do a lot of public speaking nationally on, on ideas, but I often get folks in the young, your age, I suppose, that says, hey, um, haven't you ever failed? Haven't you ever screwed up? And I think, heck yes, I have. Uh, but, the, you know, most people don't realize that. I know so many successful people that just talk about, you know, if all they talked about was their failures, but they learn from that failure. See, failure is the first step to success. My first failure was coming out of college, and I went into this cable television world, and I was doing some on-camera work, and I noticed I, I had, didn't have the 5 o'clock shadows. So I sat down at this, in the old days, we called these things typewriters, and wrote a letter, and wrote the letter saying, hey, to uh, Gillette, I love your, love your, uh, or I, I wrote to Sheck, I, I love your uh, Track 2 Razor, and uh, if you'd like me for a commercial, please, please let me know. So I sent it off knowing in two weeks I'd get the call to go to New York and, and be in a TV commercial. And as I dreamt about that, it's kind of like if you feel about playing Powerball or Mega Millions, what happens if I win? Two weeks of the day, I got the letter back. The letter said, Dear Mr. Rich, expressing your complete satisfaction with your Track 2 Razor, 
we regret to inform you, you've written the wrong company. Gillette makes that, and here's our address. I wrote the wrong company. But, you know, I was inspired so much about being live on television that over the years I kept giving ideas, and ultimately I've been on all major networks, all cable networks and, and social media around the world because I, I was inspired by an idea even though I failed. Um, yeah, I, I always try to tell people, you know, failure isn't really a thing unless you make it a thing, if that makes sense. You know, if you fail and keep moving on to success, it's not a thing. But if failure makes you quit, then it, it is a thing. Um, and you learn by it and try to adapt it. I mean, it's like the ideas. If you're putting that bushel basket full of ideas, the one idea that rises to the top, someone say, well, I don't know if it should be purple, but uh, green is the end thing. So let's do the wall green. And people pick up on those and work on them. So. You might fail once out. I failed uh, with the zoo. We really did well. And so there's another attraction in the state called the Botanical Center, all the flowers and our culture. And they, they called me and said, we're in the same dilemma. We want to take it over as a nonprofit. Would you come brainstorm with us? Sure. So I sat around the table and there were seven of us and I knew everybody but the one person over here. Well, that was a Friday on Sunday morning in the Sunday paper. Not a little editorial, but a whole half a page where if your name's in that, you're usually going to be fired, is the headline. Save the Botanical Center. What does a big thinker say? The person sitting over there was the editorial writer for the big Sunday paper. And it said, grow a marijuana display. Oh, my God. Or uh, get a Venus flytrap big enough to suck down a cow. Or, you know, make it a respite for people with breast cancer because the dome does look like a breast. My wife said, oh, my God, you're not saying that. You know what? They didn't use a single one of my ideas, but it inspired them to think up new ones. And now it's one of the best botanical centers around the nation that they've put together. All because they weren't afraid to try something. It's better to have tried and failed. That's my old professor and colleague. Better to have tried and failed than to succeed at doing nothing. And as a government employee, sometimes I think everybody thinks that you succeed at doing nothing. <laughs> yeah. I always hear about, um, you know, somebody who hasn't failed, lives a very uneventful life just because, you know, they don't try anything new. Um, and I think that happens, well, now more so my generation, I see it a lot. You know, everybody wants to play safe. And then you know, 20 years down the line, they're like, oh, man, wish I did this. But, you know, now I can't because I'm burdened with X, Y, and Z. And I turn, I tell the story in my 50s, um, I had grandkids. And the grandkid came over, and this, this is a good way to, as an analogy. Uh, she pulled herself over to the couch, pulled herself up, and what did she do? She turned around and took her first step. Well, what do you think happened? Boom! She failed, right? But what did she do? She didn't realize that was failure. She pulled herself over and took two steps. Boom! Failed again. Then three. Boom! Four, five, six, seven. Ultimately, she's running all over the house. Most people, they fail on the first attempt to give up. Yeah. Shouldn't be the case. Absolutely. So you've scaled the failing business. What about your startups? You you have startups, correct? Or you've had sure. startups? Let's go back to the old Schick Razor. Dumb idea. I failed. A few years later, I wanted to be on national television and my local hometown called and said, hey, um, we're going to have a centennial. We don't know whether we're 100 years old, but screw it, we're having a centennial. We're going to have a party. So I said, okay, will you help us with publicity? Yeah, well, we only have 50 people. So I met with them and we started brainstorming, back to the brainstorming. And the idea was, and the guy, they said to me, you're our most famous person. You've done radio and TV. And I was like, gosh, if I'm the most famous person, we better adopt someone. 
So I sat down and wrote a press release and said, hey, we want to adopt someone and we, we're going to give them a free oil and lube. That's all those in town, free cemetery plot, um, ask them crazy questions like you ever chew tobacco or, you know, stupid farm questions. Lo and behold, I went up to the library at the next town because we didn't have one in Cooper. Sat down and did the uh, old press release, and I hit the button too hard, and I printed out 44 copies of it. So I can't oh, who am I going to send it to? So I went to the library and just started sending it to Miami Herald, New York Times, just anybody I could get because I ran out after five for all of the press in, in Iowa. I sent them out. You know, I sent out 44 letters. 43 of the 44 failed. Think about that. If I'd only sent out one letter, I would not probably be sitting with you today. But I got one call the next morning. It was from a guy called Bruce Canner with United Press International. He says, we like the idea. We're going to stick it on the national wires. Let me get a couple of quotes. Said, okay, who's UPI? I had no idea. Well, tell you what, half hour later, the phone rings. Said, hey, Terry, Terry, yep, this is Jim McCauley. I'm a talent coordinator with Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Johnny, as you know, was born in Iowa. We want to do something with this, but we need to be guaranteed that we're first. We guarantee we're first we're going into a staff meeting because we'd like to do something. <laughs> Hell yes. You know, Johnny Carson, what? Yeah. 20 million people? Sure. Hung up the phone, but I, I picked it up and couldn't get a dial tone. And I heard this screaming on the other end. Hey, this is Judy Steinberg. And with Good Morning America. We want you in New York tomorrow morning. Sorry, we just committed to the Tonight Show. You can't legally do that. You know, she yelled and screamed for a while. Lo and behold, it was all said and done. They talked about doing the entire Johnny Carson show uh, from Cooper, Iowa, getting a satellite uplink, which had never been done in Iowa. There'd never been a satellite uplink at that point. Um, but they couldn't get it all together, so they flew us out, gave us a limo, put us on first. We were on for two commercial breaks, put us in front of 20 million people. And that little town of 50, little town of 50, had 12,500 people show up for the centennial that weekend. Plus ABC, wow. CBS, NBC, Good Morning America, The Today Show, and all sorts of fun. Well, that wasn't the real moral of the story. Remember, we were talking about better to have tried and failed than to succeed at doing nothing. Uh, all of these ideas, like in the bushel basket, I didn't realize you could do satellite uplinks. And so I, I started thinking about, I've been doing free previews. I was doing working cable, and I would, one of the shows I did was a free preview of HBO. So we'd go into a town and crank on HBO on one of the basic cable channels. So you could see it for free. Hey, Mars, there's seen movies here. But at the end of the movie, I'd come on live and say, hey, you like this? Call us now and get HBO on your own. But I was traveling from town to town to town to town. And I thought about all of the failure that 43 times I failed, that one time I didn't. I got on Johnny Carson. They talked about satellite uplinks. Why couldn't I uplink? And do this for the entire nation. Just do one big one. So I called the first guy at HBO. And they said, eh, I don't think we can do that. Call the second guy. He said, call the third, fourth. About five people in, they said, yeah, when do you want? Ahead of technical operations, Bob Zitter for HBO. They drove out a satellite uplink. And six months later, we did an HBO free preview. and sold $15 million versus of HBO that weekend. Wow. Holy smokes. That just shot up my deal. Well, as I told you at age 40, we had some people come in and try to buy out our company, and ultimately we did a leverage buyout and cashed it out, and it was very successful, very fun, kind of like being in Google at the early days. But then what do you do at age 40? And I realized I got to do something, so I started my own companies. And one of them was doing satellite-free previews for HBO, and it blossomed out to doing a lot of the pay-per-view fights where we'd get on before the fight for 24 hours and say, hey, you want to see the fight? Now's the time to call, and then you have the number down below, and they can call, do all that. So. 
that really turned out to be a really fun one. Bought a radio station. There was one that was for sale. We bought it, sold it, doubled our money in a year, which was a lot of fun. Um, and we started uh, another sh uh, show. I thought, you know, I'm doing all these, but when I get home, it's done. It's like work for hire. I get my, my money, but I don't own anything. So I need to do a TV show. So I thought about what's the number one TV show on cable television during that time in the mid-90s. I thought, it's World Wrestling Federation. What other sport could we do the model of World Wrestling Federation? Ah, how about soccer? They don't pay those guys anything at that point. You know, it's just getting started in America. So I got a bunch of professional soccer players, brought them in, bought a turf for an ice rink, and we did full contact indoor soccer with a whole theme of the coach was messing around with this guy's wife and all these different things happening. But we hired stuntmen to fight all the time. We threw two balls in for part of it. So we did this crazy show called Soccer Slam, S-O-C-K-E-R, which uh, made it on Fox Sports World. And they got more hate mail from the soccer peers than anything they'd ever received, but the college kids loved it. Well, we got busy doing more HBO, so I forgot all about it. And about a year and a half ago, I get a call from someone from the athletic sports internet, number one sports internet, just bought by the New York Times. And this guy said, hey, I heard about this. And I happened to see something on the, on the web. We do a story, and they did a 27-page feature story on the making of Soccer Slam, which turned into another guy calling and said, hey, I'd love to do a documentary on the making of Soccer Slam. So this last two years, we've been uh, producing, and that's now shot and edited, so now they're out pitching it to different networks to see if they can have an hour and a half special of how we made full contact indoor soccer, uh, where they would fight and yell and scream and had a great – we had even had a brown card that seemed to someone pass gas, and so instead of a red or a yellow – play soccer we gave him a brown card um see it's all crazy. it's just fun i mean the idea dude is part of not being afraid to try anything and and to throw it all out and you know you're narrowing it down to one or two good ideas but if you only say yeah, i need that one idea it ain't gonna work yeah um what is a uh what's a gnomon or did i pronounce you know that right? when you're in that brainstorming uh session and I kind of got this when I called the HBO, the first guy that you called. You say something, you see something, go, no, man, that, that, that'll never work. We call it, I call that the no man's. And usually, uh, you know, it's an accountant or it's a lawyer. But if you tell them we want your ideas and every idea is a good idea, you get rid of the no man's. That's so important when you're brainstorming because all you're doing, no judgment is so important uh, until, until you get to the next step of daring to act. And most people are afraid to act. That's the big thing. Everybody's got a million dollar idea. In fact, I got one at the end of the show. I'll tell you the million dollar idea. If you want to invest in, we'll do it. That I haven't gotten done yet, but I still think it will work. All right. Um, so with everything that you've done, all the success, I know you were just recently shooting a documentary and such. What, what do you do now that kind of, not a day to day, but or passes your time, but what makes it fun now, you know? I think, I think doing professional speaking in retirement is the absolute ideal job because I decide when I want to work, I travel the world. Uh, they pay me, fly me in in great comfort. And, uh, when I'm done, I go travel around that area and look around, I, you know, because I'm already there. So it, it really, if I want to take a month off and do my own thing by myself, I can do that too. But I got kids and grandkids too. They all live around here. So that's pretty rewarding too, having family here. Uh, so that's rewarding. But I, I still have to keep busy. I think you got to keep your mind busy and your yeah. body busy to, 
to uh, survive. I don't want to just sit around for sure. On your um, on your journey as an entrepreneur, um, very creative mind and all that goes along with it. What were three of like the most influential individuals or things that occurred in your professional career? One was family. My dad was always encouraging, no matter how crazy an idea I was growing up. They called me ornery, but uh, even when I, later in high school, they called me creative in there. My dad would always kind of smile and say, okay, try it. You know, what the heck? So he was always encouraging. Or even when I was successful in cable television or anything I did, I'd call, he'd call and say, what are you doing? I'd tell him, he'd, he could hear me and say, well, you know, what was that again? He would ask me the second time, and I didn't realize until after he died that he was doing that, just encouragement. I mean, it was so nice. Uh, because most people either are jealous or doing that. So dad would be one. Uh, Ted Turner was another one. He was an amazing guy. He was a great entrepreneur. Uh, we brought him in for a speech and we're driving up. And I, he looked down. I said, what's up, Ted? And he said, well, he said, I have two psychologists. And he said, uh, and my accountant just told me I'm worth a half a billion dollars. And he said, I just, I'm still seeing two psychologists. What is going on with that? I thought, you know what? This guy is the most successful guy I know. If he's that way, why can't I do it? And so, you know, I learned that anybody can do it. it, it you know, you just got to keep plugging away and, and keep going. So that'd be one. And then I think, uh, uh, you know, employees, the people that I've worked with, I've had three really fun uh, female employees who, who were encouraging and laughed and, and, you know, never complained. It was fun. And I don't know they stand out because, you know, you have bosses who tell you good things. When you have employees that are really fun to work with and good and, and encouraging, that also good because they worked hard and did well and were also successful in what they did. So I think those would be the three. Um, you know, outside of trying being one or, you know, throwing all creativity, you know, out of your mouth, don't keep it stored in the brain. What would be other, I guess, tips for younger entrepreneurs? That you would um, like to share? I think if you've got a if you if you've got a company, you got the idea. Uh, I've learned that most entrepreneurs aren't great long term uh, business managers. Uh, get you know usually you want to get advisory group around you. You don't have to pay them. Uh, find a lawyer, or an accountant, um, and someone with marketing skills who'll give you advice. Uh, and it's it's tough to take advice when you think you know it all. Uh, but that really, I think, helped me in the long run. The second is, once you are successful and you have money, take a portion of that and just put it aside, and that's your play money. I do that now. Every time I do a speech, whatever, I put money aside so that I can try something else new, try a new company, try something else, invest in something else. Uh, but you don't want to, you know, you, you may have to mortgage the house to do your first one, but once you start having family, you don't want to mortgage everything. You want to take a percentage of what you make, Put that aside, and that's your, you know, whether you're gambling, you gamble with it if you wanted to. You are kind of gambling when you're starting a company, but only spend what you can lose when you're, once you get to that, that stage. Absolutely. Um, so, a uh, quick question, I guess. Uh, do you enjoy reading? Do you read a lot or no? I absolutely hate reading. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, do you listen? I, to I'm very visual and I love to hear things, I love to create it. See old uh, Henry Ford, I, I, I don't know whether he actually said this, but the story goes that Henry Ford was put on trial because they wanted to kick him off the head of the board, and uh, the, they were saying, the uh, prosecutors, that he wasn't very smart. And he looked up at him and said, you know what, I can pay any kid a nickel to go find out that answer. I'm paid to think up new ideas. 
that's kind of been a good philosophy of mine for years. Do you uh, listen to podcasts or anything of the sorts? Um, yeah, I uh, maybe uh, I I don't like to sit and be near anything that's uh, longer. I like the very short five ten minute recaps. Yeah. Uh, and all my management CEO, I want the executive summary. I don't want to read through them, pay other people to know the details and the lawyers to make sure everything's fine on that and the accounts to know where that goes. I like the high level and get a gut feel of what works and what doesn't. Um, I got one other story for you, Michael. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Damon John, who's with Shark Tank, I did a, an episode with him. He taught me something in my old age that I think is really vital as people. I, I think that if I could do anything different at 21 is learn how to relax. I've never really learned how to relax. And once you have success, it's like cocaine. You want to keep doing it. You want to try the new one because there's a buzz on something successful that's so exciting. He, every night, has a list. I don't know if it's six or eight things that he writes down at night. And in the morning, he looks at it and revises it. He does that every evening. And because he's so successful, it isn't something that he's going to do today for someone else. It's something he's going to do for himself. I thought, gosh, that's a great idea to give back. I mean, you're going to help. I, I want to help, you know, the zoo, all these other places. I want to help other people in what I do. But you got to be happy with yourself. Happiness happens on the way to success. And that that's the challenge and the fun of success. Uh, but, the, you know, being able to wake up and say, I'm going to go get that hamburger I haven't had for a long time because it sounds darn good. Or I'm going to uh, go to the zoo. Or I'm just going to take 15 minutes and relax is something that he does and he can check off. And that I think that's just a great lesson in life. Yeah. Um, especially now more so since, you know, it, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or even like, I don't know, people who are following set career paths, they experience burnout so often, which seems to be, so yeah, it seems to be like it, it, I heard it once compared to like, um, it, I personally think it was a terrible comparison, but people are like, you know, burnout is basically, you know, kind of how COVID is. It knocks one person out every single day. And it's like, it made sense. Ultimately, why I tried four different careers. I was forced in the first one in that you sell the company, you got to do something different. I mean, yeah. I was forced to do that. I, didn't, I wasn't fired or anything. I got a nice payout to do that. Uh, but everything after that, once I get in four or five years, my, my expertise was marketing business operations. But when it came to fundraising or building the new zoo exhibits, it was time for me to leave. I knew there were other people that had better expertise than I did. So they came in. So I put my building block in that. And they put their block in their block. And so, you know, it's kind of what the organization was needed. Same thing with the lottery. Uh, and that was exciting because I was marketing and sales and, and management. I didn't have any idea what to happen when ethics comes in and somebody tries to pull a major fraud and you have to figure out whether you should do it or just forget about it and keep your mouth shut as a government employee so that you didn't get in trouble and fired immediately. So I didn't get fired from any jobs. I got to, I had got to have four completely different careers, but I always worked two jobs. Almost everything I, I did, I always had a second gig going somewhere. I mean, I even do consulting besides the speaking now. and I try to do all these different things. and. Maybe it's ADHD, but I, I don't know. I just enjoy being busy. All right. Um, I guess I the final question or our final take would be, I mean, so, I mean, you've, you've gone through many of businesses. You've, you know, revitalized some. You've started your own, everything like that. How do you think the, um, so like as technological advancements occur and, you know, different shifts. And as you mentioned, ethics and 
people running these businesses, starting these businesses, how do you see like the outlook on entrepreneurship going forward? Do you think it's going to, you know, grow more plateau? Are we going to run into different problems? I think, I think we definitely will continue. I mean, you got to look for the, what, what is one thing that you have that no one else has done? And uh, I'm going to give you two examples. Number one, uh, that doesn't have to always be, and that's what's going to make your success as an entrepreneur. So you're looking for things that everybody likes that you'd like to create. That done. I went to a, to a hotel, and the back of the stool was this box. It had a hole in it. It said, waste exfoliating uh, cleanser or something like that. What the heck is this? And I looked in, and I thought, oh, my gosh, an accountant figured this out. They realize when you go to a hotel and this big bar of soap that's in the shower, you only use about that much on the outside. So they cut out the middle and they put that piece on the sink. Well, now instead of having two bars of soap that cost them, they reduce their expenses by 50%. Pretty smart, huh? Yeah. The other one that I have that I, you know, is you think about, you just got to get crazy and think, okay, you know, what's this? What can we do differently to make this work? I looked up one day, I got a call and they said, hey, think of something that would help us with Mega Million promote it because we just merged the two groups together and how do you sell more tickets and I thought gosh where would be a great place to put the jackpot amount and I, I looked up and there's the moon and it looked like the thumbnail you know where it's bright on one side and dark on the other why couldn't we figure out how to get a laser or a spotlight and put the amount on the moon? we could own the moon as a billboard so I called all over to try to figure out and they said oh the atmosphere would break it up no matter how strong you are but if you can get out in space so I'm thinking about how do I get Elon Musk to uh, get us a satellite with a big spotlight on. So when you wake up and you see Michael's name on the moon, how much would you pay for that? <laughs> that's uh, that's honestly one of the craziest but best ideas I've probably heard. Uh, honestly, <laughs> um, so that's gonna wrap it up. Have fun. Look at look at how much fun it is to create the ideas. It's even more fun when you can take an idea and take it to the next level and have success with it. Boy, yeah. there's no better fun. I feel there's probably better ideas as well when you're having fun. I mean, you know, I, I've experienced, I'm sure you have, when you're not having a good time, you're just kind of like, okay, I'm done giving ideas. And then some of them sit in the back and they, they could have been... People that. buy things because they want to be happy, right? Yeah. They don't buy things because they're brief. They want to be happy. And so if you're creating ideas that make you happy, other people will be happy. Absolutely. Okay, so that's all I had. I'm gonna wrap well, that's up. That's all I have. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna wrap up the recording. Um, I want to thank you once again. Uh, thank you for being on. Um, and you did call me a son of a rich once. Thank you. Son of a rich. <laughs> no, honestly, it didn't didn't pass my mind to be honest. Son of a rich. Um.